You can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together, and we're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be at Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Let's begin in prayer together. Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege to get to come before you and ask you for help. Father, with this last song, God, we praise you for the grace to sing it as well. When things are really, really hard and in any other season. And Lord, I feel burdened to bring before you my brother and sister, Joel and Kamari. God, I pray. Lord, you are so exalted to the highest place to have them sitting there singing praises to you in the midst of hardship. And I just praise you for that, Lord. God, I pray that you would be to them a God of all comfort. It comforts them. God, comfort them in every tribulation. Comfort them in this tribulation, Lord. God, in the deepest place of grief, I pray, Lord, that they would know that, that it's well with their soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, roll, Lord, I pray that they would know that it's well with their soul, Lord, because you're their God, you're their Savior. I just praise you, Lord, for what you're doing in my brother and sister's life, Lord. God, thank you that we can come to your word. The world's always changing. It's so unstable, but your word is steadfast, immovable, like a rock, Lord. And I pray that you would help us right now to stand on the rock that is your word. Open our eyes to its truth. Help our unbelief and give us hearts to obey. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, as I said, we're in Matthew 5, verse 33 through 37. But I want us to start by sort of zooming out and just talking about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. So we're... We're in the Sermon on the Mount together. This is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And we're reading Jesus' teaching. This is what he taught. This is what he preached. And um, it's astonishing. <laughs> it's authoritative. We, we read it and we're astonished at his teaching. And we say, Lord, help us to obey. You're our king. You're our authority. So just a few questions to consider in the Sermon on the Mount. One, 
How does the Sermon on the Mount present the world that we live in? How does the Sermon on the Mount present the world that we live in? And it presents it as rotten, so rotten it needs salt. Dark, so dark it needs light. Deep darkness, a decaying world. That's, that's the way Jesus speaks about the world in the Sermon on the Mount. And the world's disregard for God, it, lit it literally affects every single sphere of life. Attitudes of pride and arrogance, sexual morality, marriage and divorce, every area of life. And what we're going to get into today is Jesus touches on our speech, what comes out of our mouth. The world has wicked speech and they're untrustworthy. Now, why is the world so rotten and so dark? Romans 5.12 says, says this, Just as through one man, speaking about Adam, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death, death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. Why is the world so dark and so rotten? Why? It's the depravity of humans. It's the depravity of mankind. Ephesians 2.3 says we are by nature children of wrath. How about that for a description of you and me in this world? By nature children of wrath. Scripture's clear that because of this, the whole world is hellbound, deserving eternity in hell. So this is the Sermon on the Mount on the, on the world. Second question, what does the Sermon on the Mount, or what does it say about, or how does it present the church? How does the Sermon on the Mount present the church? Uh, how, does it, how does Jesus teach about His people? What does He say about His people? And we, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount that His people, Jesus' people, are a people that realize their need for Christ. They know it. They know that they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says at the very beginning of this sermon. That Jesus' church are those people that realize they need Christ because we're bankrupt spiritually in and of ourselves. We're a people called out from the world, from the darkness. I'm reminded of that. Do you know that? That that dark, rotten world, we were a part of that. That was us. We're sinners like anyone else. And yet Jesus is yanking out a people for himself, a church. And he did it by coming into the world. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save a people, to bring out a people for himself. He went to the cross. Do you understand the cross? That at the cross of Jesus Christ, our sin, the sin of his people was laid upon Jesus and the wrath of God, the punishment of God that's supposed to fall on all of us in hell forever. He swallowed it up. He died for sinners. We were in the world of the world, from the world, rotten and dark. And yet Jesus died for our sins and brought us out of the world, risen from the dead, king forever. Everyone who repents and believes in Jesus becomes a part of his church. 
And what we see in this sermon, in Matthew 5-7, through 7, we see a clear portrait. You read through Matthew 5-7 through 7, and you see a clear portrait of this is what my people must be. This is what my people look like. In Matthew 5-7, through 7, in this sermon, he says in chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, that we are the salt of the earth, the rotten earth, and we're the preservers. He goes on to say in the same, same paragraph there, we are the light of the world. This dark world has a light. What is it? It's his church, his people that he's pulled out that look like what he describes in this sermon. We're a people called out of the world and yet for the good of the world. Salt of the earth. Light of the world. So what happens in this sermon, this sermon from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, it touches on all these aspects, just every aspect of what Christians, what his church ought to look like. Every aspect. And then what we have today in our passage is that aspect of our speech, what we say, what comes out of of our mouths. Are our words trustworthy and truthful and honest? And that's what he addresses. Now, one more question about the sermon as a whole is how does Jesus in this sermon, how does he present the Pharisees? How does he present the Pharisees? Now, there's really a surprising, if you think about it, there's a surprising focus in the Sermon on the Mount on the Pharisees. At the very beginning, we've got your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then this whole chapter we're in, Remember, it's these six contrast statements. Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he mentions something, and then he says, but I say to you. And this whole chapter is him contrasting what the Pharisees did in relaxing the law and distorting the law, and he's laying out the real standard for his people. Then you get into chapter 6, and Jesus says, you hypocrites, these hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Who's he talking about? He's still talking about these Pharisees. So I want you to think about this. These Pharisees, they would have um, widely been recognized as that's the righteous people. That's the, that's the religious people. Maybe, maybe you know, imagine you're, you're living at that time. Maybe these Pharisees are the salt of the earth. Maybe these Pharisees are the light of the world. They would have been widely recognized as the religious people, the spiritual people. Maybe they're the light of the world. And what Jesus does here is he makes it really, really clear that, listen, that's not true. Those Pharisees, have, they're law relaxers. My church, they're law abiders, but those Pharisees are law relaxers. We see that in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And in our passage, it makes it clear that those Pharisees, yeah, they might look religious on the outside, but it's all externalism. Yeah, they never killed anybody, but what about that anger in the heart? Yeah, they might not commit adultery, but what about that lust in the heart? He makes it clear that these Pharisees, they might stand out from the world in a sense, but it's all externalism. They don't have that righteousness of the heart that flows out of regeneration when God changes your heart and makes you a new creation in Christ. They don't have that. That's what the church is. The church is the light of the world, not the Pharisees. And Jesus makes that very very plain here. Now, that contrast between Pharisees and the church is put on display in all of these six statements 
You know, you've heard it said, don't murder. As if it's just this external standard. But I'm telling you that, that it's about anger in your heart too. You've heard it said, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling you, lust in your heart. You know, you've heard it said, give a certificate of divorce. But I'm telling you, if you divorce them, you commit adultery in your heart. Or you commit adultery. And then we come to the fourth contrast statement today that deals with our speech. So let's look at it. Verse 33 through 37. We're going to read it together. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So here's God's standard for his people. A standard of honesty, of truthfulness, of integrity, being men and women of your word. This is Jesus' standard laid out. Now, let's take this passage in three parts. Okay, Number one, the Pharisees' standard. Remember, they distort the law. They're law relaxers. So what is the Pharisees' standard that's being confronted here? Let's look at it again, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's, it's true. That phrase, that, quote, that phrase is true. But there's no Old Testament verse that says that, okay? But it is a statement that summarizes several different Old Testament scriptures, okay? So what I want to do is just point to a couple of those. So Numbers chapter 30. Listen to this. Numbers chapter 30. Listen to verse 2. If a man makes, excuse me, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. He shall not break his word. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. Another one, Deuteronomy Chapter 23, this is verse 21 through 23. Listen to this. If you make a vow to the Lord, your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you. And you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. 
For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so this statement in Matthew 5.33 is a summary statement that summarized those two verses in God's law and other verses in God's law. But I want you to think about this. When the Pharisees, when the, what's the Pharisee standard? When the Pharisees read those scriptures, when they read Numbers 30 verse 2, and they read Deuteronomy 23 verse 21 through 23, when they read that, what did they walk away with? How did they distort and relax that standard that God laid out right there? Well, here's what they didn't do. They didn't read those verses and go, you know what this means? This means we need to be men and women of our word. We need to keep our word. We need to be faithful to our word and have integrity. They didn't say that. You know what they said? They said, ah, if I make a vow, if I make a vow, then I have to keep my word. I wonder what kind of vow. If I keep this kind of vow, do I really, am I really bound to keep my word? But if I keep this kind of vow, you know, am I free to just kind of do what I want? You see how they missed the point? They missed the point. <clears throat> now I want you to think about this. When you read this summary statement in verse 33, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Think about this. The Pharisees, that's a true statement, and the Pharisees are good with that summary statement, but it didn't mean be a man of your word or keep your promises. Instead, it meant don't, like it says here, don't swear falsely. Oh, what's the right kind of swearing? What's the right kind of vow? Now, here's why I'm saying this. If you look at Matthew 23, you can see it in our passage, but I want you to see it in another verse, and we'll come back to our passage. Matthew 23, just listen to this. This is, again, the Pharisees. This is their error. Matthew 23, verse 16. Woe to you, Jesus talking to them, woe to you blind gods who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound to keep his oath. You catch that? They read those verses and they hear, yeah, don't swear falsely. Hmm, what's the right kind of vow? If you, if you swear by the temple, no problem. If you swear by the golden temple, then you've got to keep your vow. Look at it in verse 18. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You see their error there? If you go, um, if you do some research, research on the Mishnah, which is this um, uh, collection of the oral traditions of the Jews, you'll see stuff like this all, all over it. That, and, and it was essentially this, that, that if you make a vow that invokes the name of God, then you need to keep that vow. But if you make a vow that doesn't invoke the name of God, or you just say something, whatever, then you're not bound by that, no problem. And it was full of stuff like that. And you see Jesus addressing that right here. Think about, look at verse 34. So Matthew 5, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. <laughs> see, people were making oaths by heaven. Yeah, that doesn't invoke the name of God, so I can make an oath by heaven and no problem. He goes on to say, and not by earth. 
You see how they're trying to get by it? Or, or uh, by Jerusalem. Or by your own head. And I love the way Jesus deals with this. Because the way Jesus deals with it in our passage right here. Is it's like he tells them. You can't get away from God. No matter how you word your promise. He says you swear by heaven. I sit there. That's my throne. You swear by earth. I prop my feet up there. That's my footstool. He said you swear by Jerusalem. That's my city. It's the city of my king. You can swear by your own head. And your own head doesn't even belong to you. You can't make one hair turn white or black. Your head belongs to me. You swear by anything, you swear by my name. Now, do you see how they missed the point? Do you see how the point is be a man and be, you know, keep your vow, whatever proceeds from your mouth, do it. And they missed the point and said, oh yeah, which kind of vow? They didn't see it as a command or a standard of truthfulness. Now, we, we, need to be, we need to be aware because we're not, this is not foreign to us. We do the same thing today, right? Like when you feel like you are bound to your word, when is that? Is it when, well, if I'm talking to somebody really important, then I need to do what I tell them. But if it's somebody else, whatever. Or if it's really going to cost me something, I better keep my word. But if it didn't cost me anything, who cares what I, I don't have to keep my word. We need to beware of the Pharisees' error. All right, let's move, number two, to Jesus' standard. So this is the, not the relaxed version of the law like the Pharisees gave, but the holy, righteous, true standard of the law that Jesus tells us about. And if you look at verse 34, I'm just going to read a few phrases again. Verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Look at verse 36. And do not take an oath. Verse 37 really, really gets down to the heart of it. He says, listen to this. Let what you say, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything beyond that is of evil. Anything beyond that is, it says here, anything more than this comes from evil. So what's being said here? Brothers and sisters, let your words be so reliable that you don't need vows. Let your very, the, the simplest phrases that come out of your mouth like yes or no. Let the simplest words come, that come out of your mouth be so trustworthy that you don't need oaths and vows. This is the heart of what's being said. Some contemporaries of Jesus, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he wrote about some other contemporaries of Jesus, the Essens. And uh, I don't promote either one of these, uh, Josephus or this group, but I think it's interesting. It's a good description of what Josephus said about the Essens. He said this, Every declaration they make is stronger than an oath. And indeed... They avoid swearing since they regard it as worse than perjury on the grounds that anyone who cannot be believed without an appeal to God is already condemned. What, what does excessive oath-taking, 
I swear, I promise, I'll do it. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my own head, on heaven and earth. Excessive oath-taking. What does it reveal about someone? You can't trust their simple word. You can't trust. It's not reliable. Just their simple word that proceeds from their mouth. Jesus is saying here, live a life with such integrity, such honesty, and, tr- and truthfulness in your speech that you do not need oaths or vows. So what should be the reputation of Grace Community Church? Brothers and sisters, what should be our reputation? I, I love the verse over in Jeremiah one twelve. It says this about God. God was watching over his word to perform it. He's faithful. And God, when he speaks a word, he watches over his word to do what he said, to perform his word. We want that to be our reputation in this church, according to Jesus' words, that we watch over our words to do what we say. We are faithful men and women, men and women of our word. This is the reputation we desire. We need to speak as if we are always in the presence of God. Because we are. Now, just kind of deal with something that's sort of a side note. Is this teaching of Jesus a complete abolition of all oath-taking? Or all vow-making? Does this mean you can never take an oath? Never take a vow? Now, some people have taken it this way in history. And I believe in taking it this way, they've been in danger of the same mistake of the Pharisees, the same wicked error of the Pharisees, okay? There's people that have, throughout history, they thought, you know what? You, you can't be sworn in as a witness, right? Uh, you, know, you know the whole line, I swear to tell the truth and the whole truth, nothing but truth. Uh, we can't do that because Jesus told us, don't ever swear. Don't ever take an oath. Or they can never be in political office because they couldn't be sworn in to office, Right? Now, I want you to understand how this is a pharisaical uh, missing of the point. It's a missing of the point. Instead of them walking away from Jesus' words going, we need to be people of integrity and honesty and keep our word. They think, oh, I can't take any oaths at all. I just can't take this oath uh, to be a witness on a witness. I can't take that. And so they, they, like the Pharisees, miss the point. It's not that an oath is the bad guy. Okay? This is not a complete abolition of all oath-taking. Now, how do we know that? Uh, Really quickly, I'll just mention a few things. One, we have a lot of examples in the Old Testament of of godly oath-taking taking place. Okay, Of people taking vows. And remember, this is not Jesus versus Moses. Jesus versus the Old Testament. So we have godly examples in the Old Testament of people taking vows. We have New Testament examples. Acts 18, 18, we see that Paul the Apostle entered into a vow. We have marriage. Did y'all know that marriage, you enter into becoming uh, two become one through vows. And that's not American. That's Malachi chapter 2. She is your wife by covenant. You enter in with these promises, with these vows, with these oaths. This is not an an abolition of marriage because you can never take a vow. And most convincing is throughout the the Bible, Old and New Testament, our God is a God that made oaths, that took vows, that made promises. So this is not an absolute abolition of all oath-taking. Don't miss the point. 
He's not teaching oaths are bad. He's saying quit the excessive oath-taking that puts on display and reveals that your word can't be trusted. Stop doing that. Be a man of integrity. When you say something, do it. Be faithful to your words is the heart of this passage. And so if you come back, you think about that, um, you know, looking back at those scriptures in the Old Testament. Think about this phrase, Deuteronomy 23, verse 23. You shall be careful. Listen, this is the heart of it. You shall be careful to do what has passed from your lips. The people of God are people of truth. Do what has passed from your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Did you hear that? Something goes out of your mouth this way, and it says you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God. It's a vertical vow the moment it comes out of your mouth. And this is the standard. Jesus is recovering the true standard of his law. The word of a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, should be so reliable that no one asks for more. No one desires to ask for more. So, brothers and sisters, examine yourself in this. In all the different spheres of your life, are your words trustworthy? Are you a person of truth and truthfulness, of honesty and integrity? Is that you? Do people know that in your family? Do you have a reputation in your family that when so-and-so says something, it's going to get done? When they say something, they mean it. That if they're saying it, it must be true. Do you have that reputation at your job? That in your workplace, that you're a man of your word? That what proceeds out of your mouth is not lightheartedness and, and false things, but is truth, is truth on the lips of the people of God. Is that the reputation that you have in this world, in this church, in your job, in your family? The scripture says, examine yourself. Examine yourself in this. When you speak to others, do they, do they know that they're getting the truth from you? This is the standard that Jesus is calling his church to, okay? Now, number three in this passage is the warning. And there's a warning here. And you can really feel it in verse 38. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this, here's the warning. Listen, anything more than this comes from evil. That's the warning. Anything beyond this comes from evil. Now notice it doesn't say anything beyond this comes from immaturity. It says it comes from evil. It doesn't say anything beyond this comes from your weakness. It says it comes from evil. It doesn't just say it's unwise to live a life where your words can't be trusted, but it's evil. It comes from evil. That's a warning that should land on us. This is not a light matter. It flows out of evil. Don't play around. Don't toy around with this evil. Beware. Listen. Beware of the normalization of sin. You understand that? This, this happens with, with, um, with my children often where we're sitting out watching a baseball game or something and a commercial comes on. And on that commercial, maybe there's something like, um, just, just an example, a, a homosexual couple on the, just kind of being displayed on the commercial really for no reason. And you know what I usually say to my children? 
What's being communicated to you right there? What's being communicated to you? That's normal. Don't you feel how normal that is? They're trying to normalize you to something that the scripture says is an abomination. Do you understand? Listen, this, mind, this mindset of not being a man of your word, your words aren't trustworthy unless it's really going to cost you something. That sin has been normalized in this culture. Have you been affected by it? This is serious. It comes from evil. We need, to be, we need to be really warned about taking the two commands before this really seriously, but not taking this one seriously. That you know, yeah, that adultery and that lust stuff, that leads you to hell. That's serious. And that whole divorce thing, that's really serious. And then you come to this one, you say, no big deal. No, it's deadly serious. James 5.12 it's a cross-references that, that, that can remind us of how serious this is. Let me get there and read this to you. James 5.12 says this. This is the warning. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. How's that for a thump of warning? This is serious stuff. Revelation 21 verse 8. It says that liars, which is the heart of this, they're going to have their place in the lake that burns with fire. This is very serious. It's not to be taken lightly. It's verbal flippancy. Verbal flippancy. Unfaithfulness to just the simplest Statements that proceed from your mouth. That's a sin that, listen, you take it so serious that you say, I got to kill that sin in my life. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. I need to put this sin that Jesus is exposing, I need to put it to death. Kill it, murder it in my life. And I need to kill it at the deepest levels. You know, there's a lot of different things that I believe are underneath this sin. Sort of root sins that produce this sin that Jesus is exposing. And we need to kill it at the root level. So I'll give you a few examples. Selfishness. Selfishness. So often, selfishness is a reason we are not true to our words. Do you understand that? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I said it. I know I said that. But if I do what I said, it's going to cost me something. Listen, Psalm 15, verse 4, it exalts this. A man who swears to his own hurt and yet does not change. He swears to his own hurt and yet does not change. Psalm 15, verse 4. But selfishness will keep it from them. No, no, that's going to hurt me if I keep my word there. I better not do that. It's, we got to kill it at the root level of selfishness or pride. It's another root sin. We got to kill it at that level. So often the reason we say things that we have zero intention of doing is because of our arrogance. It's because of our pride. Why would we look at someone and say, yeah, yeah, brother, sister, I'll pray for you when we have zero intention of praying for them? Why would we do that? Because, man, it makes us look spiritual. Ecclesiastes 5, 5 says, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. You look real in that pride. You look so spiritual because I pray for you. I pray for you. I pray for you. But no intention of keeping your word. 
It's pride, and we got to kill it at that level. I think another thing that's underneath this would be just carelessness with your words. Just being careless with our speech and with our words. A casual flippancy in the things that come out of our mouth. I heard one pastor say it like this. True Christians don't blow a hole through the truth with a cannon. That's not normally what they do. But we're in danger of slaying the truth with a thousand paper cuts. Just a thousand little paper cuts. A thousand little flippant, careless words coming out of our mouth that we have zero intention of acting on. And we should be warned about this. We should kill it at that level. Matthew 12, 36, I believe it is. It says, a man will give an account to God for every careless word that he speaks. Every careless word that he speaks. And you, and you, could, you, know, you could go on. And we, here's the point. Grace Community Church, kill this sin. This sin is not light. It's not a light thing. This is deadly serious. Let's be people of truth. Let's be people of integrity. People of sound speech and honesty. Whose simplest words, just simplest words like yes or no can be taken with tremendous weight because we're faithful to our words. Now, I want to close with a question. Okay, so let me close out our time in this passage with a question. Here's the question. Why does this matter so much to Jesus? Now, I don't think I can give you an exhaustive answer to that, but I think I can give you a couple things that are important. So why? Why is it so important to Jesus that his church, his people are trustworthy in their speech, are reliable in their words? Why does, this, why does it matter to him that we meet up to this standard? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why does it matter? And I give you two reasons. One, the church represents God. You understand that? The Bible says we are ambassador, ambassadors for Christ. There's some representation happening there that when people see the church, they're supposed to know something about God, about their creator. So the church represents God. God. And so what's he like? What, what is, what's God like? Uh, uh, this one whom we represent, what's he like? And there's a lot of scripture you could turn to. Let me just mention a few. Numbers 23, 19. It says God's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it? Will he not do it? Has he purposed it and we not bring it to pass? Our God is a God that does every single thing that he says. He is faithful, faithful, faithful to his word. You can take it to the bank. You can stand on it like a solid rock. When you see it in God's word, it's true. And he will fulfill it. That's what God's like. Another scripture, Joshua 23, 14. It says, not one word has failed of all his good promise. How many words have you spoken, Lord? How many words are in the scripture? And he says, not one single word has failed of all his good promise. Praise him for his faithfulness. Psalm 89 verse 34. 
Not only will he not change his word, he says, I will not alter the word that has proceeded from my mouth. He won't even shift it a little bit. You won't, you won't get to the end of God's word being fulfilled and say, man, he almost fulfilled it exactly like he said. You won't say that. You'll say, man, he is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. He's faithful to his word. And listen, church, this is the one that we represent. When, our, when we're obeying Jesus' commands here, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything beyond that comes for the evil one. Be faithful to your words. You're putting God on display. So I believe it's important to Jesus because the church represents God. And number two, and lastly, as the church, we are truth propagators. Okay? We are, we're, we're truth propagators. We're truth promoters. That's what the church is. We see that in 1 Timothy 3.15. It says the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So we hold, what does the church do? We hold the truth firm and we hold it high for the whole world to see. Okay? So we're truth propagators and truth promoters. The church is a people radically devoted to honesty integrity and truthfulness and radically opposed to deceit lies falsehood and dishonesty now by this devotion to the truth and to truthfulness on our lips that puts the church standing in stark contrast to the world that we live in and i imagine everybody here feels that stark contrast to the world that we live in the world we live in is full of deceit full of lies and like a poisonous gas this deceit has seeped into literally every sphere of our world every every uh, piece of our life it's just seeped into it like a disease several examples right now the, the you know the the whole media and news reporting's taking a lot of heat for this right you felt that you got so much stuff coming at you from news reports and everything else, you don't have time to research it all and you have no clue who to believe. So people are feeling that. This world full of deceitfulness and passing along agendas that are not the truth. You see it all over politics, right? What does it say about, about our world that our presidential debates need fact checkers? And even more condemning, why do our fact checkers need fact checkers? Why? Because we're so full of just deceit and lies. And I'll say it, but bend it this way so it sounds like this. It's just wicked. It's evil. It's condemning. I said it seeps into every area. Even the, even the, I thought about this. Even the so-called scientific community, right? Supposed to be about facts. Based on facts. Undeniable truth. And yet you see so much promotion of a boy being able to proclaim and say that he's a girl. Or a girl being able to say that he's a boy. This is biological absurdity. This is an attack on truth and truthfulness. It's seeped into every area. Every area. The poison is seeped into the business world. You brothers and sisters in business, you know that. Into religion. Into, into personal interactions. Who can I trust? When people say something, can I believe it? Who can I trust? And here's what's beautiful. 
Even many people in the world are sick of it. Even many that aren't even Christians, just, they, they feel that, and they're just sick of it. And then here's what happens. Like a beacon of light in the darkness stands God's church. To be a people of truth, a people of truthfulness, a people of honesty, and a people of integrity in a world that is absolutely devoid of truth. A world of untruthfulness. And that's my prayers, that the world would see our radical resolve to be truthful. Our unchanging, Grace Community Church, your unchanging faithfulness to your word. And when they see that, they'd be drawn to believe the immovable truth of the gospel. And let's pray that the Lord would do that. Father, thank you so much for letting us meditate on these beautiful words of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. That you would remove from us dishonesty. Help us to kill the pride and the selfishness and the carelessness with our words, God, that that make us seem so dishonest and to lack integrity. Being unreliable and untrustworthy to our word, God, please rid our church of this. In each one of us, our individual hearts, God, kill this sin in our lives. God, I pray that if there's any here that hear this, and your law pricks their heart that they don't belong to you, that they don't even have a heart for the truth, God, and they're bothered by it, God, I pray you'd save them. Open their eyes to forgiveness and salvation. Lord, you said that liars have their place in the lake of fire. And Lord, yet you've saved all across this room so many liars. You've saved us, Lord. Lord, I pray that in every round that you would give us a reputation, not for our sake, Lord, but for the glory of your name and for the advancement of the truth, to put your character on display, that you would give us as a church a reputation that we are men and women of our word. Thank you for being so faithful, Lord. Not one word has ever failed. Lord, help us to be faithful as you're faithful. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.